All right, folks, welcome everybody. Come on in, have a seat. <clears throat> Make sure you have a copy of the notes for this week. And if you don't have a copy of the notes from last week, there, I, I have about 20 copies of it. You'll notice that the notes this week are much less, um, you know, ginormous than they were last week. So I was just trying to give you a lot of information that you could maybe digest later. Today we'll be reading a lot more scripture. Um, so as you're getting those notes, and also, by the way, um, Brandon and the tech crew back there, kind of almost sound like the name of a band. Brandon and the tech crew, um, they are put... <laughs> They put uh, the audio up on the website, and, all, and the notes are posted up on the website in case you ever wanted to download a PDF. And by the way, that's the same for Sundays as well, so that's always available to you. Um, PDF? What's that? Oh, okay, whatever. Jay Hearn, I got you. All right, well, I got a couple books to give out uh, that we have for sale in the resource room that I think might be helpful and of interest to you. Um, the first is uh, a very short book that is written by a guy that um, I know personally. He's become kind of a pastoral friend of mine. He and I are in the same little small network of pastors that get together once a year for fellowship uh, that's connected to the Nine Marks Network. And he, his name is Jeremy Rine, Rine, and uh, he is a pastor up in the Boston area. And he has written a book called How, the, How Will the World End and Other Questions About the Last Things and the Second Coming of Christ. Just a real kind of broad overview, very quick read, uh, re- really helpful. Um, and so Ricky Dawson, there you go, brother. That's for you. There it is. And then this next book is a little bigger, and it's not the type of book that you read all the way through. It's a question and answer book. In fact, this is part of a larger series of books uh, that a particular publisher has put out called F- the 40 Question Series. And so there's books in this series about 40 questions about, you know, the law, uh, 40 questions about uh, elders and deacons, 40 questions about all sorts of theological topics. This one is called 40 Questions About the End Times. And it is, uh, let me just kind of read a few of the questions just to give you a little uh, flavor of some of the questions that the author um, and, uh, asks and attempts to answer for us here. Um, so, what, uh, what are the signs of the end? When will the signs of the end take place? What are the sealed trumpet and bold, judge, bold judgments in Revelation 6? Um, who are the 40, 144,000 in Revelation? Um, uh, what is the abomination of desolation? Who's the lawless one? What's the beast in John's prophecy? Who's the Antichrist? What's the meaning of the number 666? Um, and on and on and on. Uh, just some really uh, very short. Each chapter is only three to four to five pages. Now, I will tell, the, tell you this. This is not a real thorough treatment of each of these questions. It's kind of a broad overview. But it's very accessible and readable. I will say that there are times when he writes and he kind of, it's like he's trying to be so generous that he never really lands the plane. And you kind of wonder, well, where does he stand on it? So some of his answers to the questions I found maybe a tad bit unfulfilling, but it's a really good um, uh, overview of all of the questions. And here's the other thing that's awesome about the, the book. This guy's a professor at a very well-known and respected seminary in Chicago called Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And his name is, get this, Eckhard Schnabel. I mean, it, 
Come on, you just want to read a book by somebody named Eckhard Schnabel, right? Does anybody want a copy of this book? I see a yellow shirt back there. Mark, can you give that to the gentleman there in the yellow shirt? There you go. Um, and we have both of those for sale in the um, room uh, there in the resource room. All right. Well, let's, uh, let me pray, and then let's get into, uh, we're going to talk about today, the return of Christ, the rapture, the tribulation, the Antichrist, and again, I had it happen to me again these last couple of days, I'm sitting in my office working through this material, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? I've bit off way more than I can do, we're just going to, oh man, we could, do, we could just do this for a couple of weeks, but um, this, again, this is a broad overview, and I am by no means an expert in this particular area of theology, I don't think I'm an expert in anything really, uh, but I... Uh, this is an area where I am still learning and growing, and so we want to have a lot of charitability and graciousness towards one another, and, um, and let's just kind of learn and grow and become more like Jesus as a result of our time together. So let me pray. Father, as we get into your book, as we read scripture, as we think about the return of Christ, about uh, future events, I pray that you would do two things. For those in this room that are trusting in Christ, which I am assuming is probably uh, a majority of us, I pray that the things that we speak about today and think about and read would serve as a great encouragement to us, that we know that you are the Alpha and the Omega. And as you said through your prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46, that you have declared the end from the beginning. The future is not unknown to you. Nothing sneaks up on you. And you are superintending human history and the history of the universe for your glory. And so we, regardless of what the future holds, we can be confident because we know you and you will work all things together for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. And Lord, if there's anybody in this room this evening that is not trusting in Christ, I pray that the things that we talk about today, that you would use them as a means to cause them to not just stare at a, a fascinating part of biblical doctrine as if it's like an exhibit in the zoo, but that you would cause them to realize that they must turn from trusting in themselves and turn in faith to Jesus, even tonight. So Lord, if there's an unbeliever in this room tonight, I pray that you'd Open their eyes to the beautiful truth of Jesus, who is coming soon, we believe. Help us now as we read these texts and think about these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to look at kind of four different topics pretty quickly. The return of Christ, the rapture, the tribulation, and the antichrist. And these things kind of flow together. So the return of Christ... What are the signs of the end of the age? And we're going to settle in on Matthew 24. So if you have a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 24. The Bible speaks about two ages. This age and the age to come. And if you remember last week, we talked about one of the challenges to a couple of the millennial views is that especially dispensational premillennialism, which um, we'll talk a little bit more about, um, kind of breaks it up into actually sort of three different ages, and uh, premillennialism does as well, where you have this present age, the millennial age, and then, and then the future. Um, the Bible speaks of this present age and the age to come. And so this, this text in Matthew chapter 24 is Jesus' really most extended discourse or teaching 
on the age to come and the end of the signs that, that will surround um, the end of the age. Now, before I read Matthew 24, and we're going to read a good bit of it and stop and talk along the way, is you need to understand that traditionally, Bible interpreters and scholars have viewed, uh, I would say the majority have viewed the events that we're going to read in Matthew 24 as having both a near-term fulfillment and also a distant fulfillment, okay? So there are some Christians who think that everything that we're about to read has already happened. And that's prob- they're probably in the minority, I would say. Um, but, but most Christians would believe that the events that we're going to read about in Matthew 24, some of them, in fact, maybe even most of them have in some sense happened even in the first century in the destruction of the temple of, of, in Jerusalem in AD 70. And, but they also speak about future, future events, okay? So Jesus is speaking these words several years before his death. So we're talking about, you know, A.D. 29:30, somewhere around in there. He then is crucified around A.D. 33, okay? And then it's very significant that you realize this, that a couple decades later in A.D. 70, the, there was Jewish rebellions going on, and Rome came and squashed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and just really leveled the city because of the Jewish rebellion. Okay, so it's very important that you kind of know. And I think that part of what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24 is fulfilled, at least um, in a near sense, in that destruction of the temple. So let's read Matthew chapter 24. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus, they're looking at the temple, and he's saying, not one stone is going to be left. And that happened. There is no temple in Jerusalem today. That was absolutely flattened by the the Romans in AD 70. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and an end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then the verse 14 comes, and verse 14 is very significant. It has many implications for, uh, for the church. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. 
Like that's the only thing there that Jesus really actually attaches the appendage on there that after this happens, then the end will come. And he's saying once the gospel is preached to all nations, and when you see that word nations, you need to read it not as the political nations like you know, the United States and Mexico and Italy. You, that the word nations there in the original language is really referring to ethnic groups, language groups, groups of people, which I don't know how many nations there are in the world, 200-something, maybe a little bit more, but there's far, far, far more ethnic groups and language groups. So he's not saying that when the gospel is preached to every political nation, uh, but when the gospel is, is, it hits every ethnic group, then the end will come. So let's just pause there and, and say that um, Bible interpreters have, have, I think, rightly understood this. All of these things happened in the first century between 33 AD and, and 70 AD. All, all of the things that, that... But they're also still happening, right? So, there, so you, I want you to see kind of that dual um, realization of the fulfillment of these, of these signs in Matthew 24. Verse 18. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, and what is, what is that? Back in Daniel chapter 9, um, and that is a very weighty, very difficult to understand prophecy in the Old Testament where the prophet Daniel has a vision uh, of, about a particular portion of time about 70 weeks, and that, if we have time, we'll kind of look at it at the end, but it's, that, that really is worthy of its own night. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation such as not has been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So I want to interject something there on verse 21. It does seem to, Jesus does seem to indicate that there will be this great, there will will be tribulation, but that it will have a period where it kind of intensifies at the end. He says there that there will be a great tribu- tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone asks you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And again, we could look at each one of those signs that he's mentioned and there were people in the decades following Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah that were false prophets. And certainly that's been the case throughout the history of the past two uh, centuries. There's been, so there's a near-term fulfillment and a distant um, fulfillment of, of these signs as well. Verse 29. Immediately 
After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. We're going to get back to that in a little bit when we talk about the rapture. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch comes up tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things takes place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now let me stop there before I read a little bit more, and we're just going to make a few summary comments. And again, we're just sort of breezing over it. I just want to get you into the text to familiarize you with it and send you, you know, to some good resources like these books um, and send you into a good study Bible like the ESV study Bible to do your own further study is that I want you again to see that there's a near-term fulfillment to virtually all of these, but Jesus is obviously speaking about something before his second coming. Okay, so I will say, although I want to be real generous towards people who may have different views, that those that think that all of these, view, all of these things have happened and that there's no f- far fulfillment of them, I, I just I kind of respectfully think that they're wrong. I think that it's kind, of, it's kind of both there. And then one other thing that just to kind of orient you to the lay of the land is that a particularly debated and um, dug into verses, verse 34, because it's a little clue there, Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So those that believe that all of these things have happened and have no distant fulfillment take that very literally to mean that the generation that Jesus was speaking to, um, you know, everything had to happen before they passed away. Uh, But I think that most biblical commentators over the centuries would probably say that there's several different views of what that means, but maybe Jesus is probably more likely speaking about the generation of the church believers. Um, there's much more we could say about that, but that's just a hotly debated verse. So, so this kind of leads us like, okay, what's going on? There's this imagery. Oh my gosh, there's these crazy things happening in the sun and the moon. and uh, So we're going to look for these signs, right? And then, so it might cause us to, you know, I don't know, listen to some kook on the radio who's going to say that May 21st, 2011 is going to be the day that Jesus comes back, which, by the way, was the day that Robert and Sigourney Ward were married. And we were joking. Remember that Harold Camping, that nut that was on the radio? And, and he was getting all that publicity, and it was Robert's wedding day. And I was like, bro, man, you, you've been dating this girl since you guys were 14 years old, and Jesus is coming back, and you aren't even, you aren't even, well, anyway, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Mama Ward, did I get the, uh, are you here, did I get the wedding date right? Was that May 21st? Was that right? Okay, good. Was it 2011? Oh, man, I was on. Spot on. Okay. I don't know if I remember that because it was Robert's wedding or because that nut job Harold camping. But anyway, so verse 36, and by the way, Jesus, praise God for Robert and Sigourney. He did not come back, and that guy proved himself to be um, wrong for about the 1800th time. Verse 36 But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son. That's a whole theological topic that we can talk about because Jesus is God, Alpha Omega, but in Jesus while he's on the earth, it seems to have 
He's putting his... Oh, anyway. Nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And we're going to get into that later. So all of this, I think we should read this. Okay, here's what, here's what we should read this. And we shouldn't look at it like it's a jigsaw puzzle, right? You know, or like it's like a, it's a combination lock. You know, 38 to the right, 28 to the left, and then that's the lock. And then we know the date. I think we should look at this and we should go, ooh. And it should cause us to worship and it should cause us to be prepared and it should cause us to be about the task that verse 14 says that this gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So let's just look at a couple things. And again, friends, there's so much more we could say about this, but I just want to orient us to the return of Christ. Number one there, under letter A, events have both a near and far fulfillment, okay? Which kind of going along with that is this idea that there's this already not yet tension in the New Testament. Some of these signs have already happened, but they're not yet fully realized. And it's the same thing with just the individual Christian life. We spoke about it last week. I mean, in one sense, Ephesians 2 says that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. But yet we still struggle with sin, right? So we are caught in this very unusual, tension-filled time of the redemption, the history of redemption, where Jesus has already won the victory, but it's not yet fully consummated and realized. And we see that even in the, the, the overlaps of these ages. Jesus' kingdom has come, but it's not yet fully realized like it will be. And then third point there, we do not know the day of the hour. So just one practical implication of this is anybody, anybody that says that they have you know, they write a book, and they're on some obscure Christian television station at 3 o'clock in the morning, and, you know, you, you get caught up watching their goofy stuff, um, and they're talking about setting times, and they, they just are off. I mean, the Bible just says you don't know the time or the, or the, the day or the hour. And then I want us to just notice, again, I don't want us to just look at this doctrine as if it's like a monkey in a zoo and say, oh, honey, look at the monkeys. Let's go look at the tigers. I want us to stand under the weight of this and feel verse 14. It says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, how does God intend to get the gospel out? Through the church, through us. Verse 4, when we read all that, see, I think Christians miss the point when they think, oh, moons, all this dark sun. They should, verse 14 should sit on us and compel us. Listen to what a, a very respected New Testament scholar, George Ladd, said about this. And I want to give credit to Laura Susan Kane. I don't know if she's here today. You hear Laura Susan somewhere? I saw her. There she is. Laura Susan sent me this quote, um, very, very helpful last week. And it's a quote from George Eldon Ladd about this verse. And the subject or the question is, when will Christ return? And I believe he writes this in his book called The Gospel of the Kingdom, Scriptural Studies in the Kingdom of God. It's rather lengthy, rather lengthy, but I'll read it quick. The subject of the chapter is this, when will the kingdom come? I am not setting any dates. I do not know when the end will come. And yet I do know this, when the church has finished its task of evangelizing the world, Christ will come again. The word of God says it. Remember we read it. He says, once the, all the nations have been evangelized, then the end will come. Why didn't he not come in AD 100? 
Because the church had not evangelized the world. Why did he not come in 81,000? Because the church had not finished its task of worldwide evangelization. Is he coming soon? He is. If we, God's people, are obedient to the command of the Lord to take the gospel into all the world. How are we to know when the mission is completed? How close are we to the accomplishment of the task? Which countries have been evangelized and which have not? How close are we to the end? Does this not lead to date setting? I answer, I do not know. God alone knows the definition of terms. I cannot precisely define who all the nations are. Only God knows exactly the meaning of evangelize. He alone, who has told us that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the world for a testimony unto all the nations, will know when that objective has been accomplished. But I do not need to know. I know only one thing. Christ has not yet returned. Therefore, the task is not yet done. When it is done, Christ will come. (laughs) I love this. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms of our task. Our responsibility is to complete it. I mean, that's good, right? When your dad tells you to mow the lawn, you don't say, well, you know, I mean, I mean, do you want me to, you know, kind of do a zigzag? I mean, how do you want to, I mean, uh, Dad, I mean, get off your tail and mow the lawn, right? And he's told us to evangelize the world. Our responsibility is not to insist on defining the terms of our task. Our responsibility is to complete it. So long as Christ does not return, our work is, is undone. Let us get busy and complete our mission. I could read on, but I think that's enough. Boy, isn't that true? So let's, let's be a church that doesn't just stare at stuff like it's an exhibit, but let's be a church that sends missionaries. Let's be a church that's called to be missionaries, and um, let's, let's, let's speed the return of Christ. And, and as, we, as I read that chapter, as I read about just the love of many growing cold, you know, my heart breaks. Like, again, that's not just some distant thing. I'm sure some, unless you just were just not on the internet at all this past 24 hours. I'm sure many of you saw the, the undercover video of the, um, uh, this particular human rights, uh, uh, I mean, pro-life organization that did an interview with a medical director for Planned Parenthood. Did you guys see that? And there's this medical director for Planned Parenthood, which is just an adoption mill. It's just a wicked organization that uh, just promotes abortions. Uh, what did I say? Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, abortion. I'm sorry. I'm for- forgive me. I'm sorry. Totally scratch that from record. <laughs> Plan- Planned Parenthood is an abortion mill that just I- is, is killing babies in our nation. And this medical director for Planned Parenthood was caught in an undercover camera talking to, answering questions from these people about how they harvest the body parts of, of aborted babies. And she was talking about, I mean, it's just, it was heartbreaking to watch. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't gruesome. It was satanic, is what it was. It was absolutely satanic. And we have politicians in our country that trump this, that fund this. I mean, it's, it's satanic. I mean, it, it, it's as bad as anything that's gone on in the history of uh, the Roman Empire, as, as ridiculously decadent as it was. I mean, it is, it is happening here. And so these things are, like, I, when is it coming? I don't know, but this world is 
wicked. It's wicked. I don't think these things are far out. I think that these things are, are upon us. And so may the Lord cause us to, to be about verse 14. Okay, any questions about the return of Christ before we get into the rapture? I'm sorry about that word mess up there. That actually is the exact opposite of what I wanted to say. Sorry. Terry. Oh, you're right. Okay. All right. Gotcha. Any questions? Okay. All right. Let's get into the rapture. All right. Now, this is where I get sick. Now, this is where I want you to exhale. Okay. All right. Everybody take a deep breath. (sighs) Exhale. Okay. Everybody say, I love you, Brad. Come on. Say it. Say it. I I love you, Brad. Okay. All right. Because I know that most of you probably grew up believing a view that I am going to gently, even if a little firmly, push on. Okay? All right? So say it one more time. I love you, Brad. Okay. All right. And realize that this is an open-handed issue. This is a secondary area of doctrine. But what is the rapture? All right. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And we, by the way, are going to get to this on Sunday mornings in a couple weeks. So a little double dip for you, uh, you guys. This is really the one, and in, in a, in a passage in the Gospels, is really the only two places that talk about um, this thing called the rapture in the way that a particular group uh, of millennial view views it, and it would be the Premillennial dispensationalists would view it this way, okay? So let's, let's, do, let's draw some stuff on the board just by way of review. Remember? So we've got the, um, we got the post mill, okay? Here's the cross. Post mill, I love these cats because they're so optimistic. Like, man, everything's just, they're saying that Jesus is going to come post after the millennium and that we're cruising along and eventually things are just going to start getting better and better and better. And the, the world is eventually going to be evangelized by the church. And then Jesus is going to come, right? So that's post-mill. So they, um, they just think that there's, it's a one-time event. That's when Jesus comes, okay? That's post-mill. Then all-millennial um, is, is um, they, they are a very simple uh, view where here's the cross. Jesus has come and he's risen. And now here's human history, and they would see that the millennium is actually going on as we speak. It's a heavenly millennium, and that, it's, that Jesus is reigning right now in heaven. And they would see that there will be certainly tribulation that will come. And, but in one sense, all of the church age that we're in right now is marked by tribulation. And then Jesus is coming back, judgment and eternity forever. Okay, very simple. Um, view. And then you have the historic uh, premillennial, which would view history. Here's the cross. Jesus comes. We're in the church age right now. And then Jesus comes before the millennium. He comes back. And then Jesus is coming. His one-time second coming is, um, inaugurates the millennium. And then there's a whether it's a literal or figurative thousand years, there's, a, there's this thing called the millennium of, of peace. One of the challenges and difficulties of the premillennial view is that they have to um, accept the fact that there are glorified saints on earth. So Jesus has come. The resurrection's happened. We're glorified. 
But now there's still people that are in sin and alive. That's a challenge for that view, but a lot of good Christians, I, I think that there's some, some validity to this view in a lot of ways. And then there's this final judgment and battle, um, and everything is in, and then we have the eternity. This is uh, probably a dominant view in the history of the church, and then along with amillennialism. And then a very recent view, dispensational. Again, this is just a review of last week. Um, uh, uh, all the um, notes are in the, in, in the back and online, is that the dispensational premillennialism is that Jesus has come, obviously, in the cross. We have the church age. And they would split, and the, the dispensationalists are the ones that really hold fast to this thing called a rapture in its sort of purest form. They would believe that Jesus comes, like part A, and that he raptures the church. The church raptures them up to heaven, and then there's a seven-year period, the great tribulation, and then Jesus comes again, kind of the second coming, part B, and that ushers in the millennium. And then from that point, it, it's very similar to historic premillennialism. But the dispensational premillennialists, which arose in the late 1800s in America, um, and we'll get into why, uh, started to adopt this, from what we're going to read here in a second, this idea that there is this, the church will be raptured pre-tribulation, so that the church will not suffer tribulation, and the church will go up to heaven and then come back down with Jesus seven years later. So where does that come from? I know I might have just went way too fast for you, um, but you can listen to last week. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep. Again, those who are asleep are not folks that are taking naps. It means they have already died that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus has died, he's, rose, he's risen again, and God will bring with Jesus those who have died and gone on before, because that was the main concern of the Thessalonians. They were concerned that their friends who were Christians who had died were, were going to miss the resurrection. And Paul is telling them, no, that's not going to happen. Because remember, if you've been here on Sundays, you know that Paul, when he planted the church in Thessalonica, had to leave after about a month. So he didn't get to teach them a lot of the stuff. And one of the things that he didn't teach them was about you know, the future. And so they hadn't been taught on this yet. And so they're thinking, oh, there's this resurrection. They've died. They're going to miss it. Verse 15, for we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay, so from that text, and I think just kind of an on-the-surface reading, I can understand where dispensational premillennialism views that as that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to catch up or rapture the church 
And the word there is from, from uh, verse 17 where it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet. That word in the original language, to meet, then translated from Greek to Latin is where we get this word rapture from, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's why, really, that verse and another that we're going to read here in a second out of Matthew is where this idea of the rapture comes. But let's, let's look a little bit closer at it, okay? Because there's this idea that the rapture is a secret rapture. This is a secret rapture. And then Jesus comes back for his bride the second time. Now, look again at these verses. Verse, verse, um, verse 16. It says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. It doesn't, one of the challenges to the dispensational view of the rapture, breaking the second coming of Jesus up into two parts, is that there's really nothing secret about what Paul is explaining here in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. And secondly, um, what does it mean to be caught up and to meet the Lord in the air? The Greek word here for meeting the Lord in the air is a, a, a word called, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, apentasis. And this word is used to uh, speak about a, a, a royal dignitary or a king who has uh, who's, who's gone and conquered and won a victory, and now he's coming back to the city, and the citizens of the city or the country are going out. This was customary. They would go out to meet the returning, conquering king, meet him outside the gates of the city, and then kind of come back into the city with a, like a victory parade, right? That's the meaning of, of that word uh, throughout the uh, other times it's used in the New Testament. So uh, traditionally, historically, the church has not understood that what Paul is saying here is that um, there's this sort of secret rapture, but that it's a very obvious public return of Christ. It's a one-time return of Christ. And that what's happening here, Paul is hearkening to this sort of Roman um, military language here of the, 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 the returning general. And there's a, it's a victory consummation of Jesus coming down to establish his kingdom on the earth. And then we go up and in the same moment really come down to meet with him. And we see this usage let me go to Matthew chapter 25. We see the usage of this word meet in the same way. Matthew 25 uh, verse 1, the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Okay, so there's that same word, apentasis in verse 1. And the clear connotation there is that the, bride, the virgins are going out to the outskirts of the city, to meet the bridegroom, to be like the processional back into the city where there is the wedding. We see the same usage in Acts chapter 28, verses 11 through 16, which we won't take time to read. But Paul is coming to Rome, and the brothers go out to meet Paul, Apentasis, then to escort him back into the city of Rome. And those are the other usages there. So the historic... Uh, interpretation of this passage really up until the late 1800s 
was that, that what's going on here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is not the return of Christ part A, but the one-time return of Christ, wherever you may fall in the millennial view, whether it's pre or R or post or whatever, but that the return of Christ is a one-time event. And that when G- and that, and by the way, that's the way the rest of the New Testament speaks about Jesus' return. That he comes back and then there's no more chance. Like he's coming, you must repent before he comes, and he's coming, and then there's no more chance to, to repent. Why, and again, this is where I just want to be real generous, and if you believe, by the way, if you believe this, that's cool, that's fine, great Christian, I, 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 I think this view just has too many challenges. Why did, um, why did this sort of arise? Well, the, the reason why I think the dispensational view adopted this particular view or started to think along these lines is because dispensational, the dispensational view of the whole Bible um, is a kind of a much larger system that needs a lot of pieces to fit together. And one of the primary things that, the, that, that sort of dispensationalism hinges on is this very distinct separation between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, okay? Now, we're going to talk about that on the, in the fourth week, okay? And don't lose me. I know I may be getting in the weeds a little bit. Hang with me. You can, you can handle this. You can understand this. Dispensationalists like to make, maintain a very distinct difference between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. And the very ardent dispensationalists believe that uh, God has two different purposes for Old Testament ethnic Israel and the New Testament church. And they see the, they see the, um, the, the church age as kind of a parenthesis between God's dealings with the Old Testament Israel and he needs to get the church out of them so that he can fulfill all of the prophecies literally of the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. And I think if you read the New Testament, that's not really the way the New Testament speaks about the Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. The church does not replace Israel, but I think the New Testament um, church Gentiles are grafted into true Israel and then ethnic Israel in Romans 11, there's a mass conversion of them, and they are regrafted back into the original olive tree. So we're going to get into all that. I really know that's like, whoa, mind-blowing, Brad. I thought this was going to be easy tonight. No, it's, it's hard. You lied to me. But I think that there are just some significant problems with um, that particular view. The other reason why, um, th- and we're going to get to this in a second, is that the dispensationalist view reads from other places in 1 Thessalonians that when it says that God has not destined us for wrath, right, and that we will not suffer wrath, they say, they, I think that they incorrectly think that that wrath is the tribulation of this world. And so they say, oh, well, if we're not destined for wrath, then the church has to be somehow spared from that wrath. And they read that 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 pulling, that exercise, excising of the church out of the world to fit into the system of the church not suffering wrath or the tribulation. Um, but I think that they misunderstand that the wrath that is being spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 5 is not the tribulation that the world inflicts, but it's the wrath of a righteous God. And the church is spared because we're in Christ. We're spared from God's wrath. 
not the tribulation of the world. And we're going to talk about the tribulation in just a second. So I know I got into the weeds a little bit there, but that's, friends, that is why there's this um, relatively new notion of this kind of two-pronged return of Jesus called the rapture. Does that make sense? Anybody have any questions about, about that at all? I know that's probably going to heat it up a little bit. Yes, Jay. Which of these views takes the mid-tribulation rapture of the church? Uh, that's a very, very, that's a good question. That's a very um, obscure of you. There's not many people at all. That would be a sort of subset of dispensational premillennialism, looking at uh, the 70th week of Daniel and Daniel chapter 9 and the three and a half years there um, and the abomination of desolation being set up there. It's a, it's a much, much more less adhered to view, but that would be a subset of disp- dispensationalism. Yeah. Any questions about that? I know that might have been kind of heavy. So I think that the rapture, and I'm okay with using that word, like, but when I say, when, what I think the rapture is, is the one-time return of Jesus, okay? Not Jesus' return split up into two parts, part A and then the tribulation and part B. And we're going to talk about a little bit more evidence why I think that is the case when we get to the tribulation. The other, the other text that is often pointed to as um, evidence of this sort of um, snatching away of the church during this tribulation is found in Matthew chapter 24. So let's go back to where we started out, Matthew 24. And this is actually where we get that phrase left behind from, where I think there's this book series, about 17 books or something like that. Good fiction, but fiction. Um, Matthew 24. I, think, I mean, it was, I'm not dogging those guys. It just, it's not intended to be a biblical theology. It was just, it was, it was fiction. And, and um, they're basing it sort of, off of these verses. So, Matthew chapter 24. Let me start in verse 36. But concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Verse 37, very important. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what happened in the days of Noah? A flood came, right? And it swept people away, right? For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, in those fictional books, the, the Left Behind series, and in, 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 this, in this particular view, the bad side of the ledger to be on is those that are left behind, right? And they, they base it sort of fictionally on this passage. But this passage is actually saying the opposite. It's saying, as it was in the days of Noah... The flood of judgment will come and will sweep away those that are being judged and those that are left behind are safe. 
Is that, are, you, are you tracking with me? Okay, so, so I'm just, again, I'm not dogging you if you're a dispensationalist. I'm just saying, I'm just pushing on you a little bit so that you kind of see that um, there are some challenges with that. Again, like the post-millennialists here, um, very optimistic. I would love to get raptured out before the tribulation. I would, I would, I would actually love that. But I just think, I think this is a uniquely American, the only, really the only peep Christians that believe this are Americans. Iranian Christians don't believe this. Egyptian Christians don't believe this because they're, they're suffering persecution. Um, so I, I do think that there's some significant challenges there. So, so some conclusions. Dispensationalist views on Israel and the church and tribulation and the tribulation are the origin of this two-phase view. And by the way, the, 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 this camp of, of, of people who, who believe this, like scholars and stuff, they're like, they're on my team. Like, these are serious Bible people, right? I'm just thinking, these are people that have a very high view of the Bible, who like to take things very seriously, and who really like to look at the Bible. I just think on this one particular issue about understanding the events surrounding Jesus' return, I just would have a, a little bit of a difference. So I'm not, these are, these are like conservative, like Bible-believing, like these are people that are on, on, on our team here. Um, and they may be some of you. Um, so... Uh, that, that's cool too. So the conclusion number two is that Jesus' return seems to be, from the balance of Scripture, a one-time event. The rapture is a one-time event, not a, not a two-phased event. That seems to be the clear teaching of Scripture. Any questions about that? Yes, Angie, an- microphone. Yeah. 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 And what I was taught, not necessarily in the church, but by a man who did like tons of research on the book of Revelation mm-hmm. and stuff, was that, I don't know if it was Greek or Hebrew, but he used the word harpazo, which meant to be caught away. Yeah. And his, his I guess, explanation was that the rapture was caught in the air. Jesus yeah. was not coming back to the earth. Yeah. That was not Jesus' second coming. Yeah. That's how, he, how I was explained. Right, and so that harpazo caught um, it can mean several things. It can be snatched, can be seized, can be controlled. Um, and I do think we are, we are snatched in the sense, I mean, so I'm okay with that term rapture, although the word rapture is a Latin translation of actually the word meat happened a couple, a couple words later. Um, but I, I, I don't think that um, that snatching precipitates a, a sort of two-pronged view there. Um, and then to get to the, the, the fact that First Thessalonians 4 never actually says that Jesus lands on the earth doesn't necessarily mean that he does. I mean, it's like, it would be like me saying, um, I'm going to descend the stairs. Well, I think you, you, it can certainly, part of that can be that I eventually get to the bottom of the stairs, right? So I think that Paul is not exhaustively saying everything that's happening there. Um, but, but that Jesus is coming down. And again, that I think the critical word there is apentasis there, the meat, because it's this language of, of the people of the kingdom going out to meet the returning victor who are going out to come back in. And that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. 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 Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, brother. You got, got a mic? Yeah. Yes. So I'm pretty sure in uh, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, yes. he makes an argument for 
post-millennialism. Is that correct? No. Uh, Grud- Grudem is historic premillennial. Okay, he yeah. is? Yes. Okay. What, does he use the same text to argue yes. Grudem his, would ag- his point? Yeah, Grudem would agree with everything I've said. Actually, I would agree with everything Grudem has said. Okay. <laughs> Grudem would be historical premillennial. John Piper would be historical premillennial. Uh, yeah, they, they would be in here. So if you read uh, Grudem's chapter on that he would... Um, the thing I love about Grudem is he, he lays out all the views. So you, may, you actually may read a section of Grudem and you think, oh, he's, he's post-millennial. No, he's just laying out the arguments in a very generous, kind way for post-millennialism. And then if you keep reading, you'll see where he kind of pokes holes in it a little bit or, or whatever. Yeah, David. Get, Mike, yeah. Yeah. Okay, we got... David. As far as the amillennial view, uh-huh. what group of Christians tend to fall under that category as far as like, you know? Yeah. Because as, as you explained the amillennial view, actually I was influenced by um, yeah. Dr. Jeff Mooney, who is an uh-huh. amillennialist yeah. as far as we're actually in the tribulation currently. Yeah. Yeah. Is that, that tend to like Calvinists and to fall into that category mm, yeah. as well? I would say, so I would say probably the majority of historic reformed Calvinistic theologians would be amillennial and postmillennial. And I'd say that in the past hundred years, more amillennial. The, I would say a pretty significant, uh, I think since the history of the church, I think historic premillennialism and amillennialism have been dominant. I think this is probably most of the Reformed theologians of the Presbyterian covenantal view, but there are a lot of Reformed Baptists, like that's what I would be. I would be Reformed and Baptistic, which would be historic premillennial. John Piper, Jim Hamilton, a very well-known professor at um, uh, Southern. I believe Tom Schreiner, although I'm not certain, is historic premillennial. So these tend to be kind of Reformed Presbyterian, Reformed Baptist kind of in in there. and this is more, the, the dispensational premillennialists would be um, more like uh, Arminian, Baptist, um, Pentecostals, uh, you know, folks in that kind of charismatic camp. Yeah. Yes. James. I, the reason I have, a, or where I get caught up is reading Revelation. Yeah. John writes the letters to, or Jesus writes the letters to the church. Yep. And right after that, at the beginning of chapter 4, John is immediately taken to heaven mm-hmm. and sees everything going on in regards to the tribulation. Yeah. And 4 through 19 is all in heaven. Yep. John completely misses everything that's happening on earth. So that is where I get caught up with the getting caught up being in heaven, not glorified yet, seeing everything going on in the tribulation, and then returning with Christ. Because in chapter 19, um, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So this is the transition from tribulation to the thousand-year millennium. So that's where I I just Mm -hmm. get confused on. Yeah. Yeah. And different, and these different, so these, 
the amillennialists would view what's going on in Revelation 4 through 19, the seals and the bowls and the judgment, as, as God's wrath and judgment being poured out on earth during the entire church age. Um, whereas the historic premillennial would see that as those being things kind of more right closely before the return of Christ. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with there's, you. And there's no instruction either for the church. <laughs> what are we supposed to be doing <laughs> during the Great there, there, Tribulation? Well, I, well, I think that there is instruction. I mean, I think, I think our marching orders are like Lad said in verse 14 of chapter 24. Keep, you know this. There's lots of these things are kind of, man, it's going to get dicey and stuff's going to happen. It's going to be crazy and there's just going to be wicked people that are doing stuff. But the gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. He hasn't come back yet. So the end, the gospel hasn't been preached to all nations, at least sufficiently for the Trinity's um, desire. So we're just, we're just keeping our hands to the plow, as Jesus says in the parable. Yeah, I think that's the marching orders of the church. Good question, James. So, uh, John, yes. Uh, I've been whispered to most of the night by an ardent uh, dispensational premillennial. <laughs> All right. Whatever. So um, just a couple of things that, you know, I've, yeah. that there's uh, in Thessalonians it talks about that he that now let us will let until he be taken out of the way. A lot of people interpret that as being the Holy Spirit is the one that um, is taken out of the way that allows the man of sin to have the reign that he does. In 2 Thessalonians. Oh, in 2 Thessalonians, yeah. uh-huh. I'm sorry. Yeah. And then in Daniel uh, chapter 9, it talks about the seven, 70 weeks, and he said and he will fulfill the covenant with, he will fulfill the covenant with many, really, of Daniel's people yeah. in the last week. Yeah. Uh, he's fulfilled all 69 prior to that, and then he fulfills them with the last week, and that is what many... Of the dispensationalists would say, yeah. the seven-year tribulation is all about is yeah. fulfilling that week with them. Right. And then uh, again, I have heard the argument that you made just a minute ago about the um, church being wed to the Lamb because mm-hmm. we are the bride of Christ, and there's many references to that. Mm-hmm. So when does that happen? It appears in Revelation to happen in heaven. Mm-hmm. And it also appears to happen before the return of Christ. Now, and, and that, I don't know if you want to call it a dispensation or not, but that seems to be a different thing than's happening with Israel at the same amount of time, yeah. which is that seven-year period. I don't, yeah. Again, that, the thing about, to me, the thing about um, uh prophecy that makes it difficult is when you look at prophecies that were fulfilled like Jesus Mm -hmm. you know reading Psalm chapter 22 I mean that thing is verbatim yeah you know it's it's so it follows scripture so well that a lot of times you know what I think is we'll look back on this and we'll obviously in retrospect see the correct one of these or combination of them or whatever it turns out to be but what we will see when it when we look at back on it, is that it was fulfilled to the letter. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, and the reason we're kind of confused about all this, John, is because not because God can't communicate, but because we're still sinful, and not yet fully glorified. So I, yeah, I, I hear you, John. I, I think you're, you're, uh, you make a great point there. So let's let's. Any other questions? Yeah, Lewis. Quick. 
lower come as a thief. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking about Second yeah. Peter, chapter three. Yeah. Now, that, when, when you talk with thief, because I think it's, that's not the only reference in the Bible. I just can't remember what is the other one. Yeah. I think even the Lord says it. Yeah, will he come does. Like a thief. He does. But now the 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 idea of becoming as a thief, mm -hmm. in, in your opinion, uh, maybe you can answer now. Maybe you can answer later. Is as the promptness and uncertainty of the coming, or is the whole idea like a parable? Because when a thief comes, he comes sometimes he steals something and you don't even know it, it was stolen mm -hmm. until you wake up. Yeah, and that's like and for example, I know you're saying you keep saying like when you look at uh, a dispensation, we see A and B, mm -hmm. but for the church will not be an A and B, for the church will be only A, because when the Lord comes, take the church. I mean, for us, it's not coming again. We're already mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. We're going with wherever he goes. Mm -hmm. Like the same idea. If we go out with the king, the king's not coming to the city twice. He's just coming. We just sit in once. Now, with the world's perspective, he, you see it two times. You know, right. like he came and right. came back. But for us, he never came twice. Right. Right. No, just I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I think the problem, I think one of the main problems, though, which we're going to get to in just a second, that dispensational has to deal with is that one of the motivations for dispensational breaking it up is to avoid tribulation and I just I think that just sort of falls down and so well, let's get into good point uh, Lewis but let's get into the back page there what is the tribulation so um, let me go to um, uh, just kind of see there the different millennial view perspectives so post awe and historic premillennialism would all view and this is the historic majority of the history of the church would be would view that Jesus comes back, uh, that the church endures tribulation, whatever that means, whether it's a, a church age or seven years before or whatever, but that post-tribulation. And then dispensational premillennialism would, would view that, um, that the church is raptured out before the tribulation. But let's look at just the biblical evidence of, of tribulation. And this is, I think, one of the major challenges to this idea of the two-pronged return of Jesus. So uh, under B, biblical evidence. Many scriptures clearly state that Christians will endure tribulation. So John um, 16, verse 33. Do you got that up there? Let me just, instead of me flipping. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Acts 14, 22. Um, he's preaching there, Paul, and he says, strength there. Luke is speaking. Paul is strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And then to the text there that has got this, you know, in the same letter that Paul is writing. In fact, we're going to cover this text on Sunday. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just that it has come to pass, and just as you know. So even in that same letter, there's this clear indication that Christians will have to endure great affliction, persecution, tribulation, um, whatever you may, may want to call it there. I've got a repeat there, Acts 14 again. And then First Peter chapter 4, I think, is just a, a, a clear text that Christians are going to have a very difficult time on this earth. 
Verse 12 of chapter 4, 1 Peter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And he goes on there, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So if you then go down to number two there under biblical evidence, why do uh, uh, pre-tribulational, why does the pre-trib rapture the church out before the tribulation why would they disagree with this? Well, they would look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 that we read a couple weeks ago. Verse 10 specifically says that we're to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What's that wrath that's in view there? Is it the great tribulation? I think rightly read, and the church has historically read that to me, no, that wrath is not a wrath that the world enacts on us, but that it's God. So we are saved from God, by God, for God. So Jesus is saving us. He's propitiating the Father's wrath. So we're, we're being saved from God's wrath. And then in that same letter, chapter 5, uh, verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, the dispensational perspective would look at those verses and say, aha, see, that we're, we're, we don't have to suffer wrath, but I, I think that the disagreement there is that the wrath that's being spoken of there is not the horizontal tribulation, but the vertical judgment of God that we're spared from by Jesus' work on the cross. So, I, I, and friends, these are just a few verses that I picked up. I mean, we could, the, we could look at many, many verses in the New Testament that just talk about how Christians suffer. Hebrews, we could look at Hebrews chapter 10 about the Christians had their property plundered. Hebrews chapter 11 about the Christians who were sawn in half. And I mean, it just goes on and on and on that uh, Christians will suffer tribulation. And then we see Jesus speaking in Matthew 24 about how it will intensify at the end of the age. So some conclusions, and I know we're getting late here. The biblical evidence seems to clearly favor that the church will endure to some degree tribulation. Uh, now, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, uh, there is this, I think, uh, sense that God will, will help us bear up and persevere uh, in, in, this, um, in this persecution. Revelation 3, 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So there's a sense that he will keep us faithful. He will cause us to persevere to the end. Um, I'm certainly, I certainly hope that's the case. But um, I think the clear, overwhelming biblical evidence is, is that Christians will suffer tribulation. Point number two there, the vast majority of Christians have believed this through the centuries. Point number three, and a great many Christians have and are experiencing great tribulation. I mean, that, 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 to me, that's kind of like the thing that I think we as Americans need. To, I mean, we're just freaking out because of the same-sex marriage stuff. And because of just some social, but, but friends, I, the, the rest of the world, I mean, they, they endure, they have endured persecution to a great degree. Um, and I do think that clearly the Bible indicates a great intensification before Jesus' return. So 
One of the important aspects of this view of the rapture is that the church is raptured out before the tribulation. I, I just think that, that that's a there, there's just a lot of challenges to that. So any questions on that before we zoom through the Antichrist and then we'll be done. <laughs> zoom through the Antichrist. There's some phrasing for you there, huh? Get microphone, microphone so everybody can hear. Angie, thanks. I guess the thing I keep thinking about is that for years I've heard of the tribulation as seven years. And yes, we are in tribulation. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. Right. And so, so that is, there. see, so that's fitting together with this much larger dispensational system that gets that seven years from what John and Jen were talking about, the 70th week of Daniel, fitting that in a particular kind of piece in the puzzle and all of that, that seven years, abomination of desolation. So, so it's part of a much larger framework, framework, which we would be here for six hours if we had to work through all that. Daniel chapter 9. Yeah, so very, could be, could be, could be. Yeah, Daniel. All right, so... My, I guess, question is, I'm, I'm not doubting that the church will experience tribulation, mm-hmm. but in Revelations, it, the tribulation that they talk about is basically the wrath of God being poured on sinful people on earth, and I'm wondering exactly what that has to do. I, it's hard for me to kind of imagine that that same wrath would be poured upon Christians at the same time. Yeah, I don't think we will suffer the wrath of God. I think that's my exact point. And so I think that there are, there are aspects that God will, God will pour out his judgment on. God is, the, 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 we will go through the, so Romans 8, I mean, we went through Romans 8. And I think Romans 8 is, see, Daniel, when we talked about the already not yet aspect, in one sense, I am seated with Christ in heavenly places. But in another sense, while I'm still on this earth, I'm still suffering and languishing in this present life. So Romans chapter 8, I think, gives us this uh, clear picture of how we're kind of in the already not yet aspect. No, we're not going to suffer God's wrath as Christians. And that's really the wrath that's important because that wrath, it goes on forever and ever and ever. But we are, because we're still in this world we are going to taste and feel the persecution and the tribulation that everybody else has to experience to some degree in a temporal way until we die. So, so Romans chapter 8, I think, um, gives us a kind of, of picture of that, that how we're, we kind of have, it's like we're, we have one foot in, one foot out of this, of this already not yet. So Romans 8, um, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing let me get my glasses are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of god right so we're like we're like we're we're through the birth canal we're we're we're, we're becoming who we already are in christ hebrews 10 verse 14 you know we're we're we're, we're the, the consummation and, and finality of our salvation is, 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 is struggling to, to, to find its fruition. That creation itself, verse 21, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves were groaning. We have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we're already adopted, but it's like we're awaiting this full. So I think that's how I'd explain that, Daniel, but very insightful for you to pick up on that. And yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, may, I may be wrong. Yeah. So essentially what you're saying is that Christians will be present on the earth when the events of Revelation happen and when God's wrath is poured on earth, but we will not suffer from it the same way that other people. Yeah, I, th I think that would, I think that the Christians that are alive during this, whether you're historic premillennial and you think that, you know, I, I think, remember I said last week that the amillennialists and the historic premillennialists are actually quite, there's a lot of similarity here. I think that Jesus says, like we read in Matthew 24, that there's going to be a great intensification. And I think it will be a short time right before. I think God will be merciful and shield people. But I do think that there will be Christians on earth and things are going to get a lot, lot worse, and we'll have to... But I think that's going on right now, <laughs> to some degree. It can't get much worse than being drug out on a beach and having your head cut off. Like, how, how does it get worse? Like, that's happening now. Now, now there might be, a, there might be a, an intent, great intensification of it, but, but you see that, you know, there's a, there's a scale there. Um, so... So I, I, I do. I do think to some degree there will be some Christians, and God will, God will cause them. He will keep them, and, and he, will, he will cause them to persevere to the end. I think that's the mark of a Christian. I think that's Hebrews 10. Yes, Alva. And by up. the way, I mean, I realize you may disagree with these like rumblings in the car. Friends, remember, remember, I love you, Brad. I love you. I, I, I do love, love you, Brad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying that, that I grew up dispensational. Yeah. And I think probably 99% of us in this room did. There was never a time that I was taught that Christians would not go through tribulation. Mm -hmm. The teaching was not that we wouldn't suffer affliction and we wouldn't be, uh, have problems but, and, and be persecuted. Yeah. But that the wrath of God that's talked about in Revelation is a totally separate piece from all the other affliction because that wrath is God pouring out his judgment on the earth as opposed to the affliction of the church by non-believers. Yeah. And so let me retract. I, I, I agree with that, Alva. And let me kind of amend a little bit of what I said to Daniel is that I think that, see, within this spectrum of amillennialism and premillennialism, there's lots of different views on Revelation 4 through 19 and these, these seals that are being uh, opened up and these, these, these bowls and these judgments um, that I, I think, let me amend what I said. It's, it's kind of, I've got so many things floating around in my head, is that I think that there's um, many, probably the majority of the historic premillennial and amillennialists would view that, that that wrath is a kind of right at the end, and that is judgment on unbelievers. Um, so I, I would agree. I, I, you kind of you helped me shed a little bit of light on. I think what Daniel was getting to is that yes, I don't think that what's going on in Revelation four through nineteen is something that Christians are experiencing. Does that help a little bit? If I could amend that, but the persecution and the um, the the havoc in the world that we that you know we we, we will all taste that to some degree. If that helps. So thank you, Alva. Yeah, that's a good clarification. Yeah. All right, okay, let's, get, let's end this puppy. Let's land this plane with just an easy little thing like the Antichrist.
Oh gosh, what am I doing? All right. Yeah, yeah, well, thank you. Um, okay, the Antichrist. So let's read. Let's just read Second Thessalonians, and then we're going we're gonna to land this bad boy. Um, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, just a couple points, and then we'll be done. You guys are so patient. Good. Um, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So here in Thessalonians, he's called the man of lawlessness. First John 2, there's only four times in the Bible really where the word antichrist is used. It's in First John 2, First John 4. I think it's speaking about the same figure here. Uh, for that day will not come unless the rebellion. So there, there seems to be the, the, the connection of this rise of this man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, with a, a great apostasy and worldwide rebellion. And friends, I mean, we, I mean come on, we may, be, we, may, we may be getting very close to that. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, worship so that he takes a seat in the temple proclaiming himself to be God. Some Christians interpret that very literally. Others interpret that as being more figurative. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. That's what John was talking about earlier, the Holy Spirit, different views about that. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So I'm encouraged by that, right? Jesus smokes this cat, whoever he is. Like, it's not, it's not like a wrestling match, you know, and it goes, you know, three rounds, or I don't even I don't know, however long you wrestle. I mean, the, 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 Jesus breathes on him, and he's gone. The coming of the lawless one is, is, the, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Don't be one of those people. Don't refuse to love the truth and, and not be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they believe what is false. Friends, that's why the world, I mean, the world is under a delusion. It, 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 that's the only way you can explain that medical director talking about harvesting the parts of babies in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So a couple things there. This rise of the Antichrist coincides with a great apostasy. When will that apostasy happen? I think that there's a lot of correlation with... um, with what we read in Matthew 24. You can read 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3 talking about the last days that this perilous times will come. People will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so you can read about that. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, just one thing I want to mention here and then we'll end on this is that the Bible doesn't only speak of the Antichrist, capital A, singular figure, whether that is a person or a world system. Christians have differed over that. I tend to think it's going to be more of a person. But um, he also speaks about antichrists. So verse 18 of 1 John 2. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. 
Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have not continued with us. They would have, conti- they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. <laughs> so what he's saying is, is that there's this antichrist, but anybody that's not with Jesus is against Christ. So believe in Jesus. Like, don't be an antichrist and stay with Jesus and love Jesus and do whatever you can to persevere in Jesus and be part of a church that will spur you on to love Jesus and, and, and be part of, of what God has ordained to be his preserving means for people who love Jesus. Otherwise, you are little antichrists. So some conclusions um, we should be cautious in overanalyzing the identity of the Antichrist. I mean, since I've been a kid, I mean, Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist for a little while. Um, Gorbachev, you know, with that mark on his head. Reagan was the Antichrist. Obama was the Antichrist. You know, Pope Francis is the Antichrist. Benedict was the anti I mean, come on. I mean, and, and through the history of the church, you know, they thought Tacitus, uh, Titus, uh, Nero, uh, Claudius Caliglia, I mean, all these, I mean, so the point is, is just like, hey, let's be, be don't, don't get on these crazy obscure websites and get freaked out, you know, uh, you know, somebody's the Antichrist. Uh, uh, we need to be about Matthew 24, 14 and be evangelizing the world and that, that we're not, li- I don't want to, I'll know who the Antichrist, I want to not be a little Antichrist and, and walk away from Jesus. And then finally, and I love this, uh, we read it in 2 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2, whoever or whatever he is, he's no match for Jesus. Jesus coughs on him. And we're talking like, <laughs> and, he get, and he's gone. Right? He breathes on him. <sighs> Poof. What are the consequences of that? If Jesus... If, if, if human history is set and God is so powerful that when, when, when the Trinity, when the Father says, this is the time, come back and whatever you believe about this or this or this, let's, not, let's, let's sit down and you know, drink sweet tea and argue about all this kind of stuff. But now let's then get our heads out of the weeds. Let's go back to Matthew 24. This is evangelize the world. So, so every person in this church should be thinking about missions, praying about how they can get the gospel out to their neighbor in the cubicle, down the street, across the nations. They should be giving. We should be mobilizing. We should be doing whatever we can to get the gospel out. We should have discussions, chew each other up a little bit, but then we should get our heads above the weeds and realize that God is in complete control of human history and that when he says enough, Jesus breathes and the man of lawlessness and the beast gets smoked like a cheap cigar. And so if that's what the end is, then Romans 8, if God is for me, who can be against me? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously with him give us all things? It is God who justifies. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And then a couple verses later, he says, you can kill me. You can kill me. Hebrews 10, you can saw me in half. You can chop my head off. Don't fear the one that can kill your body. Fear the one who can kill your body and send your soul to hell who's God. So God is in control, friends, and that should cause us to worship and to be his royal subjects that advance his kingdom until he comes. So let's be this type of people. You guys are so patient. And then I just ended on this little crazy rant. Let me pray. Lord, speed the day. We want to be like our brother George Ladd. 
we don't want to be, we don't want to be quibbling with dad about the instructions of the task. We, we want to be about the task, God. And so there's Christians in this room who, who, who are, uh, need to know the gospel a little bit better so that they can share it confidently. Let, let the thing that drives home them tonight, that they need to sit down with an older Christian and, and, and just understand how to share the gospel a little bit better in conversation. There's people in this room who need to start giving to missions. There's people in this room who may be called to missions, and they need to, they need to, they need to, to, to start ordering their life to do that. God, do it, I pray. Speed the day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and we will rest in your sure and certain victory. And we pray all these things in your great name. Amen. Amen.